You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast. Hi there, I'm Renee Jones, and if you're a regular listener of Policy, Guns and Money, welcome back and Happy New Year. If you're new here, welcome to the podcast. I do hope you enjoy, and you can let us know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes or send us a tweet at Aspie underscore org. In our first episode for 2019, you'll hear from Graham Dobell on his Silly Season Awards for International Relations. Find out who won the 10th Annual Madeline Award for the best use of single, stunt, prop, gesture or jest in diplomatic exchanges. Later on in the show, I speak with Dr. Garana Grigic on the latest developments in the US government shutdown. But first up... Our two interchangeable grumpy strategists, Marcus and Malcolm, discuss China's space ambitions, including the historic landing on the far side of the moon, plus the latest updates on shipbuilding and whether Australia has a gap in capability for long-range strike. Hi, Malcolm. Welcome to 2019. You're our resident space expert, and already there's been some big news in space world. Uh, in particular, the Chinese landing on the far side of the moon mm-hmm. earlier this month. So could you explain what's so significant about this? I'm glad you use far side and not dark side because a lot of people make that mistake that it's the dark side of the moon. That's a pop album from Pink Floyd. The correct term is far side of the moon. There's just as much sunlight there as there is on the near side. The significance of that is that no one has ever landed a vehicle on the far side of the moon. Uh, and so this is a first for the Chinese and a first for the world uh, to have a, a rover and a, and a lander down on the far side. Is that because it's technically difficult or no one could ever be bothered? It's technically difficult. The Americans had plans to land one of the Apollo missions on the far side, Apollo 19, but the funding was cancelled um, after I think it was Apollo 15 and so Apollos 18 through 21 were cancelled and we never got to the far side. Uh, but now the Chinese have got there with an unmanned craft, uh, with a rover, U-2, uh, and they're doing science there right now. Mm. So that does show a level of technological sophistication. It certainly does. Uh, to do the landing, the Chinese had to put a communications satellite into what's known as a Lagrange point, which is a gravitational balance point between Earth and the moon. And then that communication satellite helped relay communications between the lander and Earth and made that, that landing possible. So I guess the big question is, why would anyone bother? What's there? Well, look, it's it's not so much the far side, it's the moon in general. Uh, I think that the Chinese, uh, as well as the Americans and the Indians and the Japanese and the other, and the other space uh, actors, all understand that the moon is resource-rich in terms of rare earth materials that are valuable here on Earth, in terms of helium-3, which is a substance that's found in abundance on the lunar surface but is not found on Earth. And that helium-3 is vital if we're ever going to have success with uh, nuclear fusion power, which could one day solve climate change. So there are things there that don't exist down here. Yes, essentially. The helium-3 is in abundance on the moon, but doesn't really exist on Earth. And what uh, is to stop anybody, including China, uh, starting to mine them? Well, look, obviously they have to have the presence there, and so that's a technological and an engineering requirement. But I think by the mid to late 2020s, you'll see not only China, but also the US, uh, other countries, as well as um, non-state commercial actors up there, understanding that uh, the moon is resource rich and they'll be looking for resources that they can mine. And so I would expect to see a race uh, for lunar resources uh, by the late 2020s 
between states and also between non-state actors like commercial companies. Is that ever going to be commercially viable? You'd imagine that the cost of moving a kilogram of anything from the moon back to Earth would be extraordinarily high. So No, it's it- not. It's not. Once you're up there, the, the reason why space travel is expensive is because we have to fight our way up Earth's gravity well, which is very steep. So it takes a lot of energy, which takes a, a big rocket, which is expensive to do. Moon's gravity well is very shallow because the gravity is low. So it actually doesn't cost a huge amount to get material back from the moon or from near-Earth asteroids. Uh, So once you're actually established a permanent presence there and you're mining, the economic returns are quite good because you're not fighting against that cost of gravity. Mm -hmm. So the big picture is there's stuff there that theoretically we want. Uh, It's potentially uh, economically viable to get that stuff. Uh, Is there any kind of international... Uh, legal framework that can regulate competition on the moon, or is it essentially open slather? It's not open slather. Um, There is the 1967 Outer Space Treaty, which says you can't claim the moon or other celestial bodies as national territory. However, that was written before commercial companies existed. Commercial companies can act beyond the constraints of the Outer Space Treaty. So, for example, you could have a Chinese state-owned enterprise operating on the moon, claiming areas that are resource-rich on behalf of China, but they're circumventing the Outer Space Treaty. To make matters worse, in 2015, the Obama administration signed the Space Resources Act, uh, which said to American companies that if you can go to the moon or a near-Earth asteroid and bring a resource back, you own that resource and you can profit from it. So that implies legal ownership of the territory where you got the resource. So that Legal constraint on claiming territory uh, on the moon and other asteroids, uh, near Earth asteroids, is eroding as we speak. So I think the takeaways we're going to see increasingly space, including the moon, as a uh, arena for great power competition. Great power competition, but also corporate competition. And I think that's a key point because the real innovation and progress that's currently being made uh, is being made by corporate actors and, and commercial actors rather than states. Great. Thanks very much. Thank you. So you're talking a bit about naval shipbuilding. What's the latest happening there? Well, uh, there's been a plethora of announcements in shipbuilding world in the last few months. Uh, It's really quite exciting to see what's going on. And there's things happening both in the new shipbuilding projects, but also some pretty key milestones being achieved in existing uh, shipbuilding projects and naval capabilities. So tell us a bit about those. We now have names for all of our future ship classes, which is quite exciting. So we have the Hunter-class frigates, the Attack-class submarines, Uh, the Arafura-class offshore patrol vessels and the Guardian Pacific patrol boats. Uh, All of them are making progress in various ways. So uh, the Hunter-class frigates have signed the head contract, which will govern that whole program, uh, which is quite remarkable considering government really only identified uh, the BAE Type 26 as the solution six months ago. And so it's only taken them six months really to set up uh, the overarching head contract for that program. In contrast, um, the attack class submarine seems to be taking a lot longer. Uh, The minister has recently said that the head contract arrangements, the strategic partnering agreement, has been finalised and will be signed early this year. Uh, But it's taken over two and a half years to get there, which does, of course, raise questions about what are the key difficulties between the Commonwealth and Naval Group there. 
Um, but the bottom line is uh, Minister said that that's been resolved, so hopefully we'll see some key progress there. Mm -hmm. uh, with the OPVs, uh, construction has started, steel has been cut, and assembly of the first ship has started in uh, South Australia, which is really uh, nice to see. And the first Guardian Pacific Patrol boat has been handed over to PNG, so the first of 21. So some key milestones being achieved So there. apart from the future submarine, the attack class, everything seems to be going quite well. Yeah, so it would be really good to see that uh, head contract signed mm. soon. Mm. Um, you know, Defence and the Minister have been consistent in saying, though the delays to the signing of that haven't delayed progress in the future submarine project, but the sort of snippets we're seeing do seem to suggest that uh, some key milestones such as initial operating capability, so the first submarine actually being able to go off and fight wars, is moving to 2034, maybe 2035 timeframe. So that's still a long way it's away. It's a long time away when you have the strategic outlook uh, facing us that is developing very rapidly. Yeah, that's exactly right. On the flip side, some of our <clears throat> existing capabilities are um, being upgraded and so there's been some good news uh, with our Anzac frigates, the first of the Anzacs to get the long-range L-band search radar upgrade has happened. So I think we can say that the Anzacs are now going to be the most capable mall frigate in the world uh, using Canberra's very own CEA radar. So that's a really good piece of news. And also the first AWD, uh, HMAS Hobart, completed its sea trials, combat system sea trials off the US uh, last month, uh, including demonstration of the cooperative engagement capability, which is a really good capability. Uh, it allows it to share tracking and fire control data, not just with other Australian ships, but also with US ships. So that's a pretty key milestone. So really good things happening uh, in Navy capability. I guess the one thing I'm kind of concerned about, aside from submarine uh, schedule, is long-range strike. And mm -hmm. you and I have spoken about that a bit recently. I think that is a gap in our naval capabilities, not just long-range land strike, but uh, a really good sort of 21st century long-range naval strike mm -hmm. missile. I would agree. I mean, we're still relying on Harpoon, which is an incredibly slow weapon system, very limited range compared to the sorts of anti-ship missile capabilities that we're starting to see, for example, appear with China. Yeah, and I would be very surprised if the Chinese haven't sort of cracked Harpoon and worked mm. out how to defeat mm. it. So I think we're a little outgunned there. Uh, you and I have written a couple of things recently that should appear in Aspie We've Stratus. We've got an interesting debate uh, occurring about aircraft carriers and yeah, what we so could do with that. Yeah, so how do we fill that strike gap? Do yeah. we get better missiles or are there... I think that's definitely part of it. Do we look to air platforms? And then there is also the age-old issue of do we take aircraft to sea? Mm, mm. Whether you call it a carrier or something else, is, is that the missing piece of the puzzle? So hopefully those pieces should be appearing in the strategist uh, very well, soon. Well, it should be a great uh, couple of pieces, and I think that it will hopefully encourage debate in what is a very important year given the likelihood of a new white paper in the offing uh, following the election. And I agree with you about the strike side of things. We are we have a clear capability gap there, and not only at sea but also in the air, where we lack a capability to adequately replace the F-111C in terms of range and payload. So it's something that we need to seriously think about in the next Defence White Paper. Thank you, Marcus. And thank you, Malcolm. 
Recently, Jack Norton spoke with Aspie's journalist fellow, Graham Dobell, on his annual Madeline Awards. Graham created the awards 10 years ago to offer a light-hearted review of the past year in international affairs. Graham, we're here to talk about the Madeline Award. Can you tell us about what it is and who's won it? This year's winner was just an absolute classic, a representational masterpiece. Uh, it is a photo by the German official photo, Jesko Denzel, at the G7 summit in Canada. And it's almost photography as Rembrandt. It's just a magnificent expression of how leaders do power. Because the picture shows uh, Angela Merkel standing with her hands on the table, leaning over the table, peering down at Donald Trump, who's seated, and he has his hands crossed and he's staring up at Angela with a certain, what are you bothering me about, look on his face, a certain insouciance. But gathered around the two uh, with almost the wonderfully intersecting eye lines are some of the other key players. Next to the US president, there's his national security advisor, John Bolton, with that wonderful walrus moustache. It's a character of its own, That moustache is a character, it deserves its own book. And the, the, the moustache is obviously a bit taken with it all. And the mouth beneath the Bolton's moustache is actually a little bit open. It's almost, he's not quite a gape at what's going down, but there's a certain intake of breath going on. And next to Bolton, there is the Japanese Prime Minister, Shinzo Abe. He too has his arms folded, a bit like the US President, but the look on his face is one of resignation, a certain, ah, here we go again. Slightly quizzical, I think, and... For those of you who haven't seen it, we will put a link in the description of the podcast. It's it's a wonderful, wonderful photo. But then you come round, standing next to Merkel is that you can just see the profile of the French president, Macron, and he seems to be staring directly at the Bolton moustache. But beside him, you can just see, uh, almost poking up in the top left-hand corner of the photo, is the hair of the British prime minister. Theresa May. So it's a wonderful photo of the business being done, how power actually works and how powerful people are communicating with each other. And it has, I think, rightly been described as a masterpiece. So in terms of an award like the Madeleine, which is about the use of symbol, prop or gesture, this is wonderful. And uh, it's just an extraordinary picture of in this case, a powerful woman staring down a powerful man. And so the, the Madeleine Award, it doesn't necessarily have to be a photograph that wins it. Uh, can you explain a little about the award itself? Yeah, now the, the Madeleine uh, draws its, uh, its inspiration from the former US Secretary of State, Madeleine Albright. It's, uh, it's been running for a decade now. Uh, and it originally got started because uh, Madeleine Albright put out a book uh, talking about the way she used to send nonverbal signals when she was uh, first the US ambassador at the UN and then as Secretary of State. Uh, and the book was uh, about Read My Pins, which was about the brooches she used to wear on her lapels. So instead of Read My Lips, Read My Pins. Um, and her favourite mistake was actually wearing a trio of monkey brooches to meet the Russian leader Vladimir Putin. And Putin had been briefed about the way she sent signals and he went ape at at the (laughs) monkeys. 
But she also did stuff like she, she wore a golden brooch of a coiled snake uh, to talk to the Iraqis. She had crabs and turtle brooches to symbolise the slow pace of the Middle East talks. She had a huge wasp to needle Yasser Arafat, and she wore a sun pin to support South Korea's sunshine policy. So that, that really was the inspiration for the Madeline, which is about the use of, of symbol, of stunt, of prop, of gesture, of jest in international relations. And so you've got some favourite Madelines from past years? Yeah, the, the whole point about it is to sum up some of the events of a given year, but to do it in, to, to, look, to look at how people have been communicating messages, what sort of international signalling has been going on. So, for instance, the year that it first kicked off, talking about 2009, was the year of the Copenhagen Climate Change Conference. And in the, the lead up to that discussion of global warming and what the world should be doing about it, there were some wonderful stunts. Um, the government of Nepal made a strong run to win the first Madeline by holding a cabinet meeting on Mount Everest to highlight the impact of climate change on the Himalayas. And they got 24 cabinet ministers wearing oxygen masks at over 5,000 metres. And that's really the sort of the spirit of the award. But they didn't actually win that year because the government of the Maldives assembled its ministers, got them all into scuba gear and conducted a 30-minute meeting at the depth of 20 feet. Now, that's signalling on lots of different levels. And I thought that was a wonderful way to, to, to launch the Madelines. But my favourite Madeline, I think, was a Madeline I gave one year to Margaret Thatcher. Uh, it was the year when she died. And I look back at some of the things that Ma Margaret Thatcher had done. The bit of Thatcherism that I really liked was she'd been showing some journalists around Number 10 Downing Street. She took them into the dining room and said, oh, I had... Uh, the president of France, France here for dinner the other night, guess where I seated him? And they all sort of looked, I don't know, where did you seat the president of France? She said, well, of course, I sat him in this chair opposite these two full-length pictures. And the two full-length portraits were of Lord Nelson and the Duke of Wellington. So uh, Valérie Giscard d'Estaing, the French president from 1974 to 1981, sat down for dinner with the British Prime Minister at number 10. And every time he looked up from his soup, he saw the British victors at Trafalgar and Waterloo. It's not exactly subtle, is it? Margaret Thatcher was not exactly subtle. And so just, we should probably clarify that this award is not necessarily endorsed by former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, is that correct? I've never approached Madeleine Albright about this. I've taken the position that in some things in life to ask for forgiveness rather than for permission. But I, I have covered Madeleine Albright. I, I can actually claim I've actually been in the same room with her on a few occasions, but along with a couple of hundred other journalists. Um, but I actually thought that um, although I've never been in touch with her, I actually think the award is, fits a bit of what I know about Madeleine Albright's personality, the role as the US ambassador at the UN and then as the first female uh, Secretary of State. In her, in her memoirs, Albright starts off by saying that she when she wanted to write this book about foreign policy and how it's done. She really wanted to put in the personal along with the policy. Um, she wanted to talk about the human relationships and she was absolutely concerned not to bore people to death. Now, that I think is a pretty good philosophy for the Madeline. And some of the way Albright has approached stuff over the years I find quite attractive. I think, for instance, um, uh, she is a very proud and strong feminist, but I, I, I love the line that she uses 
that anyone who thinks that the world would be a more peaceful and safer place if it was run by women has obviously never been to an all-girls school. Now, that, I think, is a combination of, of humour and insight. And I liked, for instance, uh, in her latest book that she put out last year about uh, fascism, um, talking about the fascism in the time of Trump, which is quite a serious work of foreign policy uh, discussion about what the world's facing at the moment. She makes the, the point that she is an optimist who worries a lot. And I think that's a pretty good motto. Graham, thank you. Pleasure. Finally, I spoke with Dr. Gurana Grigic, who is a lecturer in US politics and foreign policy at the United States Studies Center, to find out what is happening with the US government shutdown and Trump's border wall. Hi, Gurana. Thanks for joining the podcast today. Pleasure. Um, I'm just going to dive right in because there's a lot to unpack this uh, government shutdown. Now, the shutdown is at a record, I believe, as of today, 25 days, with 800,000 public sector workers on mandatory leave or working without pay. And it looks like talks between President Trump and the Democrats have completely broken down. Now, Grana, I'm just interested to hear your assessment of this situation and, and really how it's gotten to this point. Yeah, so absolutely. Uh, uh, we are now witnessing the longest government shutdown. It is a partial government shutdown, we have to stress, so not the entirety of the U.S. government, so not all of the federal uh, departments and, and agencies have been uh, shut down, but basically we are talking about nine departments and many uh, agencies that are falling under their uh, uh, authority. So 800,000 um, workers have now either been furloughed, so made to basically take a leave without pay or are actually working uh, without pay. Uh, now, there have been um, some of the bills that have been passed and President Trump has signaled that these workers would be back paid uh, once actually the appropriation bills passed that President Trump would, would sign. But for now, this is the major sticking point. So uh, these workers can't be paid because there's no appropriation bill that uh, President Trump would like to sign because uh, what Senate passed back in December uh, was basically funding for these um, departments and agencies, which didn't include the $5.6 billion um, dollars of funding for the border wall or the border area or whatever you want to call mm. it that President Trump made his, made his mission. And basically, um, the, the House of representatives that's now Democrat controlled is not interested in signing on to any sort of bill that would have that amount of money uh, that would be apportioned to building a border wall. Now, that's not to say that they uh, haven't said that they would collapse even on some form of uh, compromise in terms of border security, but that wouldn't include $5 billion that would be apportioned just to building what they call is basically a kind of medieval method of controlling borders. And here we are, you know, 25 days in, um, not just 800,000 workers that have been left without paid, but obviously the, the, the kind of consequences and reverberations include their families, include government uh, contractors, and overall security of the United States. States as well, given that some of these crucial departments like Homeland Security are are now being unfunded. Mm. And I'll just go back to that sticking point of that border wall, which has obviously changed quite a bit 
from when it was first announced, you know, that we're going to build a wall and Mexico is going to pay for it. Um, and now it's he's asking for uh, $5.6 billion, I think is the figure. Um, and the Democrats have referred to it as quite medieval. Uh, it also looks like polling is showing that majority of Americans uh, at about 54% uh, oppose his border wall. I mean, outside of it being unpopular with the Democrats and the general public, is it even an effective border security strategy? I mean, is is expert opinion on Trump's side for the wall? I mean, where has this come from? Look, uh, um, so two things. I would uh, just like to stress in terms of the support, um, Donald Trump is, again, uh, playing to his base. So we have to understand that actually um, Republican Party has uh, made this huge migration in terms of position on many uh, issues, mm. including the border wall over the past year or two. So uh, at this point, um, around 75% of Republicans actually strongly support the, the building of the wall and mm. around over 80 support or strongly support. So there are those that if you kind of scale it in terms of the, the strength of the support overall, so those that support or strongly support within the Republican Party, uh, the figure uh, climbs up to, to 80%. So we are talking about four-fifths of the Republican Party that now stands uh, firmly against Donald Trump. And now the mirror image is on the uh, Democrat side where nearly 90% of Democrats are saying they don't support the wall. So there is this kind of, uh, you know, party polarization, political polarization that we've seen across the board in the United States playing uh, on this very issue. And Donald Trump is capitalizing on that because he is in the run for 2020. And what we've seen is every time that he does get this type sort of pushback for, from Democrats, actually his campaign that's already ongoing uh, for 2020 is getting uh, funding, is getting support from mm. those key opinion makers and opinion leaders within um, the rights of the U.S. politics. Now, when you're asking about the effectiveness of border wall, of course, I mean, this is a, the border that stretches for thousands of miles, you know, mm. that includes uh, various natural uh, barriers in, in terms of building it from, you know, from mountain ranges to, to rivers. Uh, you can't just, it's not as easy as building a wall on, on this kind of topography. And obviously everyone acknowledges that uh the, the the kind of um, well the narrative of the the, the crisis at the border is uh, an erroneous one and, and 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 really I mean this is something where Donald Trump has been able to set the agenda where even though we've had a trend over the past couple of years actually of a decrease actually in in illegal uh, uh, immigrants mm. and then we've had a couple of these spots of um, people coming at particular times, you know, and coinciding with midterms, you had the caravan, right? And you have these kind of manufacturer crises that actually don't correspond to historic trends where we've actually seen uh, less of that immig uh, of illegal immigration along the Mexican border. There might have been a, a little uptick between 2018 and 2019, but this is not something that uh, you know, an outlier in, in overall historic trends. And furthermore, you know, the whole story about uh, uh, potential terrorists coming from Mexico and so on, this is another thing where, again, if you look at the hard uh, data, if you look at uh, some of the figures that have been published, actually more people that have been suspected uh, of uh, terrorist attacks have come across the Canada-U.S. border rather than the U.S.-Mexico border. So, uh, again, um, 
don't don't let the facts get in the way of a good story. But unfortunately, this is not a very good story. This is a story that has serious consequences again uh, for the U.S. security, given that now uh, we see, for instance, PSA workers that at airports calling in sick, and obviously uh, a huge strain being pressed pressed obviously on on uh, on those that remain working at airports and other border. Mm-hmm. Uh, crossings and then further. Mm. And so, uh, as you mentioned, Trump is looking, I guess, to 2020 and, and using potentially looking at fear as a, as a great method for voter turnout. But, I mean, I'm sure lots of people who are, are, are looking to next week and next month, the people who are starting to receive $0 paychecks and, and looking at the economy uh, starting to bear the brunt of the shutdown. And as you mentioned, there's you know, TSA staff starting to call in sick, which has uh, enormous security implications for airports. I mean, how long can this realistically go on and, and what are the options that, still remaining given negotiations appear to be deadlocked yeah so there's i mean that's on everyone's mind um how long can this game of chicken go on for and uh when is it that either of the sides is going to swerve so um last week week we've had that opportunity when nancy pelosi who is now uh the house speaker and chuck schumer the senate minority leader uh, they went to the white house they wanted to talk to uh president trump and he stormed out allegedly out of that meeting after five minute, minutes and then, you know, uh, uh, tweeted about it and said that he said bye-bye Nancy and Chuck and that he wasn't interested in what they were offering. So um, the, the kind of opportunity to, to kind of make peace and then kind of try to to uh, meet uh, each other halfway has, has uh, really been wondered. And now... Um, we really don't see um, any sort of opening. There have been uh, apparently some of these back channel discussions. We've heard that Senator Joe Manchin, Democratic senator, uh, has been trying to, to work in kind of meet with the congressional leadership and, and call some bipartisan uh, uh, meetings. But, uh, you know, ultimately the, the ball is in Donald Trump's court. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't see how uh, this is going to change in any way because obviously uh, Democrats can't and won't. I mean, again, why would they uh, concede to uh, those $5 billion of border wall? Um, both sides need to bring some sort of victory to their base, right? Mm-hmm. And Democrats equally uh, now that they have this position where, yes, they aren't able to legislate because they don't control the entirety of the Congress, but they certainly can use their powers to either stall legislation, obviously, but also to use oversight of President Trump. And currently, Democratic base, I think, would punish Democrats for not actually sticking to their to their promises and challenging President Trump. Mm-hmm. And so now the, the question is, how long can this go on without, you know, um, the U.S. government in entirety facing the backlash uh, uh, from those that have been made to work without pay or, or those that have been furloughed? And, you know, now we see that some of these labor unions are actually uh, suing U.S. government, mm. so the federal uh, employees or labor unions, the ones that remain at least, given that unionization is quite low in the United States uh, at this point, but still they are suing uh, the U.S. government, and this is going to end up in court. 
So um, it's just now a matter of this long drawn process and finding a way to uh, actually, uh, um, you know, rightfully pay uh, for, for people's work. And again, as you said, uh, it's, it's uh, 25 days in. Uh, people have gone without one pay already. Uh, they're looking at the prospect of missing another paycheck. Mm-hmm. Um, some, something's going to uh, have to give and, and uh, that's going to have to happen uh, sooner rather than later because this is obviously not a sustainable thing. You can't leave, you know, almost a third of the government uh, uh, locked, basically. Mm. And is there a role to play for Senate Leader Mitch McConnell here? Does he have options to force um, an end to the government shutdown? Look, um, McConnell uh, has been on on this side of basically not of uh, appropriating funds and not uh, uh, earmarking any funding for the border wall. So that was the the bill that passed in the Senate back in late December, if mm. you recall, right? So uh, I think that the the Senate leadership has been all for uh, basically pushing some sort of appropriations bill uh, and. Uh, uh, it didn't include the, the border funding. I mean, the problem is that whatever uh, happens in the Senate again uh, has to be mirrored by what happens in, in the House. So mm. uh, obviously there needs to be a compromise there because any bill that wants to become a law has to have a, a majority in both the House and the Senate. And then again, it needs to reach the Oval Office for signatures. So uh, again, unless there's sort of a compromise there, uh, unless there's something that makes both the Democrats and Republicans happy, it just can't leave the Congress. So uh, whatever Mitch McConnell might want now, he has to uh, talk to Nancy Pelosi um, because she uh, controls the majority of hands now. Um, in the in the House of Reps. Mm-hmm. And finally, if I may quickly just look at the optics of this internationally, I mean, I, I'm personally watching with interest, but I mean, does this make the US look unstable and weak to you know, competing global powers? Well, there is a, a great uh, a kind of a fortune for the United States that the fiasco that's called the Brexit vote is unraveling in the UK. So, very, very true. Uh, I think comparatively to what's been happening just overnight uh, at Westminster, I think US is uh, equally unstable or stable, depending on whether you see the glass half full mm. or, or half empty. But uh, clearly, U.S. has this strange arrangement in terms of these acts that have been passed um, to make the government going. So unless there are appropriation um, bills um, out there, um, basically, that are signed into law, the federal law uh, basically doesn't allow the government to reopen unless the funding has been sorted out and approved. So uh, in that sense, it is weird among the, the kind of Western democracies to go into these sort of shutdowns uh, that certainly from the perspective of Australia or some other uh, Western uh, democracies look truly bizarre. The problem is that we are now in this uh, day and age, again, of uh, political polarization, of, of the, the kind of tribalism that reigns in U.S. politics, where mm-hmm. it's really uh, come to, to this point that the government is held hostage, that, uh, you know, and that obviously includes those that work for it. So this is not the first time that we see 
year. It's actually not the first time that the government has been shut down under President Trump. We've witnessed that, uh, but only for a couple of days back mm. in uh, January of 2018. But obviously, you know, Barack Obama has faced that. Uh, during his presidency before him, uh, Bill Clinton obviously is a kind of uh, aftermath of that Gingrich revolution in, in Congress uh, mm-hmm. after after Republicans con- uh, became the majority in the Congress in 94. So, uh, I mean, my point is that this is now becoming almost the new normal in U.S. politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, the extent of this and the fact that now we have the president that's allegedly the greatest negotiator and dealmaker that, um, you know, goes into these negotiations with a maximalist position and doesn't budge from that is quite bizarre. Yeah, there's not a lot of artistic approach to this deal making, so I, I'm I'm not quite sure I'm going to be purchasing his book. Um, yeah. Well, yes, he's. Uh, He's not proven so far on many fronts that, uh, that those negotiation skills are something that, you know, the, that Harvard Business School should be including in their case studies anytime. Or Trump University, for that matter. <laughs> now, um, thanks so much for talking to me. I mean, I do hope that this ends soon without any major security incidents in the airport or people going without their paychecks for much longer. Um, thank you again for joining the podcast. Um, and I uh, hope to speak to you again soon, Karana. It was great chatting, Renee. That's a wrap for this episode of Policy, Guns and Money. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. We'll be back in two weeks. <laughs>